All right, let's go 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screen behind me in a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home. Uh, I can tell you why later, but uh, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Um, and so if you don't have one that you can call your own copy of God's Word, take that one, start reading it, and it'll be the best part of my day. So, um, we kicked off a new thing uh, last week, we're, a series we're calling Fruit, uh, What God's People Look Like. It's got a little tagline there. Garrett did the artwork. It always looks nice. All right. And so obviously, uh, obviously, because uh, we are calling our series Fruit and because we are taking a deep dive into what we commonly call the fruit of the Spirit, the very first thing to get out of the way this morning is just to ask, who can rattle them off? In which version? Faithfulness? Gentleness, self-control. She got way further than anybody else. All right, good job. So, <laughs> Naomi's always here to help. All right. So, uh, like, we can, we can tell who the good church kids are by who can get deeper into the list than others, right? Um, but, like, like, if you're not able to quote them, never fear. We're going to be in this series up until Easter, so you got plenty of time to learn. All right? So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we looked at Galatians 5 last week, and, and we kind of talked about the fruit as a singular package of good things, a singular package of things that grow in us. And basically... I don't know if you were paying attention, but basically we gave ourselves four rules to try to kind of help make sense of the fruit as we walked through them, make sense of everything. And I don't know if you caught them as we walked through them, uh, but those four rules will kind of give us guardrails to make sure we don't end up in a terrible place. They'll help guard our effort. And so those rules were one. The fruit are the, the fleshing out of God's own good character in us. In other words, uh, what God is in perfection, He is now creating in His people. He has declared us to be holy, and He is now creating in us a holiness that showcases that we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? So what He is, He is turning us into be. All right, that's rule number one. Rule number two, these fruit grow in us because of God's work rather than our work. Follow me on that one? The Spirit is the one who must produce this fruit. You can't white-knuckle your way into holiness, no matter how hard you try. You don't have that in the tank. This is a Spirit-produced fruit, not a you-produced fruit. But that leads us to rule number three. While we are not capable of producing the fruit, we have been called to cultivate the growth. By crucifying the flesh, Paul told us last week. It's a second-tier responsibility. We're not making things happen, but we are dying to our old selves and walking in step with the Spirit as the Spirit leads. And so we, we take the next step, and then we take the next step, and we take the next step. Spiritual growth is never earned, but it's not lazy either. Those are two different things. We walk in step with the Spirit. So that's rules one, two, and three, but then we have rule four. The fruit of the Spirit are not simply uh, for a personal benefit. They they end up being a blessing and a benefit to the rest of the church. That they, they have a corporate reality to them as the Spirit grows these fruit. 
So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can get it to where you can rattle them off real fast. So we looked last week as the fruit with, uh, at the fruit as kind of a, a package deal and so that they all grow together in the person who is growing in Christ, like growing in, uh, as they walk in the Spirit. But now, now that we've kind of laid the groundwork, we're going to uh, just kind of blow out the, the package and look at them each piece by piece. We're going to uh, take a single week to highlight each of the, the nine fruit. And so, um, so that, that means that we got the first one on the docket. What's the first one? Love. What is love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Yeah, you all knew it. <laughs> if you didn't sing it, you sang it in your head. <laughs> And the fact, the fact that you know how to finish the song, it, it proves that we, we need to, uh, no, <laughs> no, it, it showcases something that we're going to have to attack head on today. Um, namely, that the Bible's definition of love and our culture's definition of love couldn't be further apart. Right? We all on board with that before I even get into it? Yeah, they couldn't be further apart. They're worlds apart, wildly different things. So I'll go ahead and plant a flag here this morning. While every single one of the nine fruit of the Spirit get twisted a little bit and redefined a little bit by our culture, love is the one that gets the most twisted. It gets by far the most twisted. So how does our culture define the word love then? Well, it's actually kind of difficult to pin down. And the reason for that is because it seems to have an incredibly wide range of meanings, more than normal words in our vocabulary. Uh, just look up the word love in a dictionary. You're going to get everything from a feeling of strong or constant affection to attraction to affection based on admirations, benevolence, or common interests. That sounds fun. All right? Some dictionaries define love as an attachment, a fatherly concern, and even a sexual embrace. And that's just when you use it as a noun. When you start throwing in the verbs there, you also get an act of cherishing, desire, a bunch of other types of sexual touch. And according to Merriam-Webster, it's apparently completely appropriate to use the word love as full synonyms for both thriving and appreciation. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about our culture, but we seem to be living in a world that has a habit of cheapening vocabulary words just absolutely robbing them of their meaning and using them in ways that would never make sense to generations coming before us, other cultures. And that's not some old man get off my lawn rant. Um, I, like I'm not talking about slang. I'm not talking about the evolution of language over time. Those are comparatively natural kind of occurrences and phenomena. No, I, I mean, even as a culture with what seems to be a really, really deep literary history, and we have an English language that has no problem at all, like just robbing words from other languages whenever we feel like it. Like, oh, that's a word that you can say that with? We'll just take it. That's what we do in, in our language. But even with that deep literary history, and even with that incredibly expansive vocabulary, we still some, somehow are pretty lazy when we speak. Pretty lazy when we speak. And the word love is one of the places that I think that is most clearly seen. And so we use the same word for appreciation as we do for cherishing. Those are close in some ways, but they're not the same thing. We use the same word love for sexual desire and sexual embraces as we do a fatherly concern and benevolence. I hope I don't have to explain to you how those aren't the same thing. 
I've got a hundred different words that we could pull out and whenever we use the word love and like like each of those other words have like a hundred other words that we could use to kind of nuance our our meaning and nuance what we're trying to to say and be more specific. We could convey far more specific things when we talk, but it's just kind of kind of easier to just use the one old tired word love for everything. So what's the result of our laziness? I would argue that it's never that the lesser things are seen as more valuable. The other event happens. The important things lose their meaning. The important things lose their meaning. Whenever we use the word love in a wrong way, it will always end up robbing us of more important moments and of their depth and of their meaning. Love becomes a word that's no longer sufficient even to adequately explain something massive and important. We've, we've cost ourselves a vocabulary word. It's not just the dictionary definition that suffers. What we mean by the phrase, I love you, it gets hollowed out as well, right? As far as I can tell, we live in the very first culture in all of human history where the phrase, I fell out of love with you, can actually be spoken and everyone around you have any idea what you're saying. Like, like dig into to the history of language and literacy and all of these things, you're not going to find that anywhere. That's a new occurrence. So when it comes to pinning down our definition of love, our culture's definition of love, I honestly think, I honestly believe that what we're left with is really just a word that's ultimately used as a tool to exalt ourselves. I know that sounds harsh, but I'm, I think I'm on to something here. So as a culture, we need a word that carries weight. Like everybody understands that that's a big important word, but we need it to like be moldable to whatever we want it to mean, right? We want to use it for our own devices and whatever functions we see fit. And so I, I, I love you, but like so long as like you, you make me happy, right? So long as you meet my needs. And I love the Dallas Cowboys so long as, you know, they can actually win a game once in a while. <laughs> oh, and I love the new drink, signature drink down at Starbucks, but only if they get the right amount of foam on top. It's vacuous. It's a vacuous word that means whatever we want it to mean. So a word that we all kind of like instinctively understand is supposed to have like a selfless tone to it. It gets end up dragged around in some of the most selfish ways, right? But the Bible stands in stark contrast to the way that we use the word love in our culture. Let me, let me show you what I mean. First John chapter 4. So 1 John is a letter written by the Apostle John, or at least we're pretty sure that it was written by the Apostle John. There's some people out there who like to debate the authorship. Uh, those type of people, usually the kind of people that want to debate everything, often for very little reason. There's not a lot of reason here either, so we're pretty sure it's John. Right? And so uh, we also think that John probably wrote this letter from Ephesus to, uh, in Ephesus uh, to churches scattered across the rest of Asia Minor. Similar to what we saw last week with uh, 
with Paul when he wrote to the Galatians, uh, the region, churches in the region of Galatia. Uh, but while Galatians was probably written around 47, 48 AD, uh, that's kind of where we think that Galatians falls, uh, the earliest that First John was probably written is likely 67 AD, so at least 20 years later. And some people put it like much later than that, like 85 or 90 or even 95 AD, so uh, much, much later. So John is writing to a lot of the same churches as Paul did in Galatians, but it's at least one generation later, maybe two, all right? And so uh, they're, they're the same churches, but a lot of different people with a lot of different problems, right? But not completely different problems. The issue is still that false teachers are creeping up in the church, and it seems to have caused a bunch of people to scatter, which is often the result of false teachers in the church. People paying attention start to run away. John's trying to address that issue. And so what are these false teachers teaching? Well, a lot of people think that it's an early form of Gnosticism. Uh, the Gnostics were a heretical group that taught that there were two classes of Christians. Uh, you had the, the normal folk who still kind of dealt with sin and still kind of dealt with the you know, uh, struggles in their faith and still kind of dealt with the, the, the frustrations of life. And then you had this second higher tier who had gotten things figured out. And they had gotten things figured out because somehow or another they had unlocked something inside of themselves, what they would call a hidden knowledge or gnosis in the Greek, right? And so uh, there, there was this... They, 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 didn't have all the struggles of this lower class. No, no, they were clicking. And they had special spiritual gifts. And they, had, they, they were the ones who ought to have leadership. And they were the ones who kind of had life handled while everybody else was still struggling with some things. So a lot of people, a lot of people think that First John is a letter written to attack that. Now, the Gnostics, we, we know a little bit more about them than what we know in the Bible. They're, they're a historical reality as well. And so they didn't really gain any attention about one or 200 years after John's letter. It was really the 200s, 300s uh, that they were really pushing things. Um, but there were kind of proto-versions of them floating around back in John's day. So a lot of people point to 1 John as kind of the first instance that we have of the church attacking this heretical theology that was creeping in. This out-of-bounds belief. John's going to speak over and over again to our identity resting and being united in Christ. And so as sinners saved by grace, our hope is not in that we've figured out this second knowledge or that we've unlocked some code, but rather that we have an advocate in Jesus. And because we have an advocate, we don't need anything else. Rather than some second-tier classification of a higher knowledge, you know, we have Jesus and he's enough. And so at the beginning of chapter 4, John tells the faithful there, hey, hey, you don't have to swallow every single thing that someone claiming to be a spiritual authority tries to feed you. How about we test it? That's, that's his aim in the beginning of chapter 4. See if it's really from God. And, and hey, you know a great way to test whether or not certain teachings and teachers are, are faithful? See what they actually say about Jesus. That seems like a pretty good test, right? Like if they're playing fast and loose with what they believe about God and say about Jesus, like maybe that's a red flag. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we ought to like call that an issue. See what they actually say about Jesus. Then in verse 3 of chapter 4, he says that every spirit does not confess Jesus is not from God. So if they're not saying true things about Jesus, they're not, they're not somebody you should be listening to. 
But John's not done. What else can we look to? In verse 5, he says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. In other words, if their solution to spiritual problems sounds no fundamentally different from what the world is offering, maybe you shouldn't listen to them. Maybe that's a red flag. In verse 6, John says that what they teach needs to agree with what the apostles have already taught. If they don't agree, red flag. But then in verse 7, Verse 7, John launches into the thing to look for that he spends way more time explaining than anything else. He dedicates several paragraphs to it. And so starting in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Hey, welcome to the second most misused verse in the Bible. Slotting in just underneath judge not. God is love, man. So, so what does that mean? Well, let's work up to it. We're told at the beginning of verse 7 that, that we are to love one another. And I mean, that, that sounds like a really good, smart, lovely thing that nobody should ever dare disagree with, right? Like, like anybody want the alternative to that? hate one another, despise one another. Sounds like a bad deal. Sounds like a bad church. John says, love one another. But then without skipping a beat, John follows that up by saying that that love for one another is actually a proof that someone knows God and is born of him. In other words, it's actually a proof for someone being a Christian. And that one hits a little heavier, right? Like that, that, that one's something we got to start thinking about and worrying about. So back to our red flags for a second, from a second ago. If someone is trying to assert themselves as a teacher, leader in the church, and, and it's, they live in such a way that it seems like they lack a love for one another, red flag. Red flag. In fact, it's a giant red flag. But John opens up the discussion here beyond just teachers, leaders. Who does he give this call to in verse 7? Who? The beloved. The church. And John gives us the reason why love is so important at the end of verse 8. He starts by rephrasing what he just said, but this time in a negative sense. He flips it over. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. He is love. Love is a fundamental reality of who God is. It exists in perfection within him, right? Hey, you remember last week? Remember when I was up here last week and we said that the fruit of the Spirit is nothing more than the outworkings of God's own good character in the life of his people? Remember when I also said, also said that like, uh, like all the things that he's calling us to are nothing more than his invitation to join him, uh, join him where he already is? Still true. We <laughs> do. Still true. And because... Because God is infinitely perfect in love, that means it means that Christians do not get our definition of what love is from some dictionary, and we do not get our definition of what love is by looking at how the culture around us might tend to use the word. No, we get our definition of what love is by looking at God. We get our definition of love by looking at who God is. And this is where those who often misuse the back end of verse 8 always, I think, end up getting things upside down. 
They take a fallen understanding of love, a love defined for them by broken hearts and a broken culture, and they use that faulty idea as a framework to now define who God is. Backwards. I mean, I obviously know what love is. I love love. Love's the best. So now I know what God is like. Now, this is not the only biblical concept that we're guilty of doing this to. We often often get the definitions backwards uh, for the, the concepts of and the ideas of fatherhood and sonship. We, we do this with our understanding of forgiveness. We definitely do this with loftier philosophical ideas like the, the freedom of the will. We're, the list is long and we're guilty. Culture around us is guilty as well. And so when John says God is love, he's, he, he's not trying to explain God to us in a way that we all naturally understand and can grab a hold of, make sense of. No, he is grounding the reason for our loving one another in the one that we have been called to look like. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure, sure yeah, that sounds great. But um, uh, we're supposed to define love by who God is rather than defining God by what we think of love. Yeah, that makes sense, but... Um, but how do we know what God looks like? How does, how does the love of God look any fundamentally different from the love that we see around us? Well, John doesn't leave us hanging on that question. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so John says, hey, you want to know what perfect love looks like? Well, you're in luck because God decided to show it off to the world. He made it known. He made it manifest. How did he show it off? Jesus the answer is Jesus. God the Father sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So according to the Bible, what we know, we know what love is because we are privileged to be on the receiving end of the greatest act of love the world will ever see. That's what the Bible says. God sent his son so that, those, so that those who were dead in our trespasses and sin might live. So right, right out of the gate, like right out of the gate, we learn that love, at least as biblically defined, it has an initiating posture to it. It initiates, it leans forward, and it goes after the problem on behalf of the beloved. Rather than being self-seeking or self-protecting, it sins and it serves in order to make much of someone else. It's not only initiating, it didn't, it didn't stop there. John's got more to flesh out in his definition because in verse 10 he puts us in our proper place. Not that we have loved God, but that what? That he loved us. The Bible teaches that God loved us in an effectual way before we were even capable of loving him in return. Not only is God the good initiator, we're, we're not exactly coming to the table with anything he wants or needs. Right? In fact, all we bring to the table is a problem that must be dealt with. Sin. 
The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the good and righteous punishment for that sin, God's holy wrath. But at the end of verse 10, at the end of verse 10, John tells us what our perfectly loving and initiating God has done about that problem of sin. He says he sent his son to be the propitiation for it. That's a big word, right? That's a really big word. What in the world does that really big word mean? Well, it literally means to appease someone's wrath. To appease someone's wrath. It's, it's a sacrifice, a payment and made in order to make atonement and bring peace between two parties that are at war. A debt is owed for our rebellion. Sin must be met with perfect justice. And the greatest act of love the world will ever know, God chose to pour out that justice on himself. God the Father sent God the Son, and the Son soaked up the righteous wrath of God owed to you. That's what propitiation means. So if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, the question extended to you is simple. What, what are you going to do with that good news? Right? How are you going to respond to that news? Not only does the Bible teach that Jesus died, but the Bible also teaches that Jesus was raised again from the dead as a proof that, that what he was working on was accomplished. It was complete. And so now the, the king who conquered sin and death calls on you in this very moment, to respond to him in repentance and faith. We're, we're not done with the sermon yet, but you don't have to wait on that. You can do business with Jesus now. He's called you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And listen, if you've never done that, today's a great day to do that. i got more to talk about, but if you want somebody to talk to, I'll be down there later. We can talk after we're done. I'd love to be helpful to you. But what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? I mean, how, how do we respond? And secondly, how in the world does any of what we're talking about yet have to do with the fruit of the Spirit? Verse 11. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Our response, it's really, really, really simple. You wanted me to spell it out for you? We'll spell it out. We seek to emulate the, God, the perfect love of God as best as we're able to, period. Close your Bibles, let's go home. We seek to emulate God's perfect love to the best of our ability. And so we aim for, seeing, for leaning forward and, and initiating, right? Initiating good for others, even our enemies. Even our enemies. And we aim for sending and we aim for serving, even before those others are capable of loving us in return. We lay down what's good for us, or maybe even what's owed to us for the good of the beloved. Because God is love and because he has shown us what perfect love looks like. Hear me, love must, must be a fruit present in the life of God's people. Period. It is a non-negotiable. 
John was crystal clear back in verse 8. Anyone who does not love God does not, or does not love, does not know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. He wasn't, he wasn't just making stuff up. The, the massive problem with that, though, the absolutely massive problem with that is that selfless love doesn't exist naturally within me. Maybe you're better at that than me. Left to my own devices, I tend to run the opposite direction. I tend to slip into redefining love by whatever serves myself. Again, maybe, maybe you're doing better than me on that one. But thanks be to God, man, he has not only declared me holy, he is also making me holy. He does both. Remember what we talked about last week, right? Remember our guiding rules. These fruit are producing us by the Spirit as we walk with Him. This is not by our own effort. The love that is expected of us here doesn't originate from us. It's not our fruit. It's not something we produce. It is something that the Spirit is pleased to produce in us as we walk with Him. It is slow, it's probably going to take the rest of my life to get there. It's going to be incredibly frustrating at times. But he is faithful, and he is good, and he will never fail. But while we are 100% dependent upon the Spirit to produce the fruit of love in us, we are also called to cultivate that growth. We cannot earn it, but this is not lazy. And so when the choice is laid in front of us, we can, and when we can either pick what comes naturally to us or we can pick what we are learning that the Spirit values more and what He's creating in our hearts a desire to value more, uh, in that moment we choose the good thing, right? We go chasing it, and in that moment we take another step towards a functional holiness that matches our already declared holiness. Another step towards a functional righteousness that matches our already declared righteousness. Church family, we cultivate a God-shaped love by practicing it. By practicing it. Especially when it's hard. Especially when we don't feel like doing it yet. Especially when those we've been called to love may not be that worthy of our love. Haven't earned it from us. Guess where the best place to practice it is? Guess where we can put all of those cultivating actions into play? So the local church becomes the place where an otherworldly love is most clearly seen. Comes to the place where an otherworldly love is most clearly seen, where it can be rested in, where it can be celebrated, and where it can also be responded to. Listen, maybe you're here today and you've been around for a while, follower of Jesus for a while, but but an others-focused, self-sacrificing love isn't something that's noticeably growing in you. You're still running around, kind of mostly looking to serve yourself. Let me say the loving thing out loud. That's a problem. That's a problem that demands the response of repentance. It does. But today's a good day to do that. 
Today's a good day to respond that way. Like always, our response to God's word is to repent of sin and to lean into what he's revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, I, I think he's showing us that he is infinitely more good, than, uh, good to us than we realize. Definitely more good to us than we're often paying attention to. But at the same time, he is also graciously calling us to join him where he is. Take the step. Take the step this morning. He is pleased to provide everything necessary to get you there. Take the step. So what's the practical step of Christ-like love that you need to walk in and cultivate this morning? Listen, I can't answer that for you, but I'm guessing you already did. You know what it is. Do it. Just do it. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time we set aside to, to give us room to respond. If you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's by uh, uh, time to be obedient to Jesus in, in, in both in baptism, his command to be baptized, or maybe, just maybe, it's time to say yes to his call that he's been placing on you to take the gospel to a far away place. So, so whatever way you need to respond, we want to... Uh, we want to set that up for you and help you do that. And so if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, let's talk. I'd love to introduce you. But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for First John. Thank you for a letter that celebrates the perfect love of our good advocate. Lord, we have sin. Dare not say we don't. The one you sent is faithful and just. Faithful to cleanse. And so, God, where our love doesn't look anything at all like yours, would you call us to repentance? Would you call us to action? Would you call us to rest in what you're doing? We want to we model who you are and what you have done. And yes, we are weak, but you are strong. We are insufficient, but you are not. Would you grow these things in us? And would you use that growth to make your name more famous in this room and outside of this room? Father, for those here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you? Call men and women into your kingdom today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.